50 years ago in the early 1970s, two researchers at Stanford University did an experiment noteworthy for its clever design, its extraordinary follow-up and results, and just how easily misunderstood and wrong it was. Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. In a minute, we'll be back to talk about marshmallows and a really important question from one of our listeners. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Hey, it's Seth, and this is a podcast. It's a podcast produced by Alex De Palma. Alex is a bit of a podcast whisperer. Alex De Palma and I are inviting you to join us in the podcast fellowship. You can find out more at podcastclub.link. In it, you will learn not just the technology to make a podcast, because frankly, it's pretty easy, but you will learn to find your voice. You will find the others. And together, in this proven workshop that's back again, you will discover that you can, in fact, build a podcast, not to make money, because you probably won't, but to make a difference, to be heard, to find the people who want to hear from you. Podcastclub.link. We'd love to have you join us. Thanks. That's right. I want to talk for a couple minutes about the marshmallow test, the Stanford marshmallow test, and then I want to get to a really important question. The marshmallow experiment, it took place at the preschool that was run at Stanford University. It was done several times in the early 1970s. The conceit of the experiment is super clever. First, find out if a kid prefers pretzels or marshmallows, but for the sake of this conversation and because it's so much more fun to say, we'll talk about marshmallows. You say to a kid, three years old, four years old, maybe even five, here's the deal. I'm going to leave you alone in this room, this library filled with toys and books, and I'm going to put a marshmallow in this box. If I come back in 15 minutes and the marshmallow is still there, I'll give you two marshmallows. On the other hand, if you eat the marshmallow before I come back, no more marshmallows for you. And what they found is that some kids ate the marshmallow. There's actually very amusing video of kids torturing themselves, looking at the marshmallow before they eat it. And then they revisited these kids when they were 15 and 18 and 20 and 25, years later, decades later. And they discovered that kids that didn't eat the marshmallow did better on their SATs decades later. They got into more famous colleges. They had better physical fitness. By almost everything that one could measure, it seemed like the kids who had enough self-restraint to wait for the second marshmallow ended up being better at life. They even did a brain scan on some of them, hoping to look for some sort of magical mystery advantage. But in the 1980s and 90s, they redid the experiment. And what they found is this, that when you do the experiment with a variation of people in it, based, for example, on income, on how they were raised, on race, suddenly many of the benefits of waiting seem to go away. And suddenly it's not as cut and dried. I think what's missing from the original experiment is this. 
there's an analysis that says kids who can wait do better. But what's missing from that is maybe that kid grew up in a home where it wasn't easy to trust that an adult would keep their promise. Maybe that kid grew up in a household where there wasn't dinner served that night, even though they expected it would be. Maybe normal is different for different people, which leads to this question. Hey, Seth, love your podcast. You've spoken at length about greenlighting yourself, shipping your product, and grit. You haven't touched on race much. This episode of Science versus Belief seems an opportune time. The myth is if you innovate enough, work hard enough, and are a little lucky, you'll be successful. But this is a pitch from folks who only wanted white men voted, who only wanted white baseball leagues. When I see a doctor, I'm exaggerating my pain. When I see a judge, I'm more guilty than others. When I see a cop, I'm dangerous and scary. What happens when I apply for a programming job? When I seek venture capital? Sure, the most brilliant, bold, and gritty should absolutely be celebrated. But what are your thoughts when better than average is overshadowed by belief, tradition, and superstition? Thank you. And he's right. He's right that I haven't spent any time at all in the 100 episodes of this podcast talking about how deeply ingrained in our culture race and gender are. That if you think about it, one of the things that we do is we remember or decide about things based on how the person we are interacting with might be different than who we expected. So that if you do a business deal with someone from, I don't know, Bolivia, and it doesn't go well, you might decide that you shouldn't do deals with Bolivians. Well, maybe you shouldn't do deals with people who don't keep their word, and Bolivia is just a distraction. That again and again over the last couple hundred years, we have decided, we being in quotation marks, meaning the dominant voices in our culture, that women, people of color, people who are disabled, get an asterisk next to their name, that they're an exception, that we have to look at something through a different lens when we're talking with someone who isn't, quote, like us. But what we're really doing is saying, not like us in an easily noticed way, because everyone is not like us. And then we have the problem on top of this, of what happens when income is also added to the mix. Because our desire, and it is a desire, our instinct, to separate people based on how they look, how they were born, what they were born with, is compounded by the fact that those people are often paid less. So we talk about white privilege, and a lot of people like me who benefit from white privilege often don't hear it. They don't hear it clearly because in their eyes, it might be that no one has actually put their hand on their back and pushed them forward. But what is definitely happening, without a doubt, is that the people that you are competing with to get into that institution, to get that gig, to be treated fairly, the other people are being held back. They're being held back all the time. And it's not something that someone who has privilege notices because we, they, 
privileged people aren't being deliberately held back. And so back to the idea of the marshmallow test. The marshmallow test, when it was redone, found that the effect went down at least 50%. I have no real insight as to whether they discovered anything about whether kids trusted themselves, whether they trusted adults, whether they could learn to do so. But one of the crises of our time, and there are certainly plenty of them, is that we have magnified our instinct to blame outcomes based on external factors, labels, that probably have nothing whatsoever to do with what is actually going on. Symphony orchestras used to audition people watching them play. As a result, the vast majority of people in every symphony orchestra were male. When they started doing blind auditions, which are simple to do in classical music, you just put up a screen between the judges and the people who are playing, suddenly, overnight, the percentage of women that got into orchestras went up dramatically. But it couldn't go up enough because women had been trained from an early age to expect that they weren't going to be in an orchestra. They were trained by people who, quote, meant well, unquote. Trained because they didn't want those women to have their hearts broken. And so, yes, your question is exactly right. That what is it like to walk down the street and have someone cross the street because they're afraid of you? No one's ever done that to me. What is it like to interact with a job interviewer or a policeman or a judge or a government official and have the benefit of the doubt held out against you? These tiny slights, some not so tiny, some that impinge on our health and our liberty, they compound. They compound in a way that undermines our ability to wait for a second marshmallow. And then we get to this idea of asset utilization. Asset utilization is easy to understand if you're running a farm. It's easy to understand if you're running a factory. Well, no one's running our culture, but we could think about it as if we were. There are billions of people on this earth. Some of them are going to cure a disease. Some of them are going to save a life. Some of them are going to have a software breakthrough. Some of them are going to care for someone, maybe your grandmother. And if we get in their way, if we undermine them, if we teach them not to trust any system, not to bother pushing themselves, well, then we've just wasted that asset for them, for us, for all of us. So yeah, there's a crisis. And the crisis isn't organized from a central agency. The crisis is endemic, a pandemic. It is everywhere we look, even in places, locales, where everybody is of the same race, even in clubs where everybody is of the same gender. It gets compounded because human beings are wired to make these quick judgments. And then that wiring is amplified by our culture. It's amplified by the fact that magazine ads are inherently misogynistic and inherently racist and have been for a very long time. There was a video going around a week or two ago that showed a scuffle on an airplane between a woman who had reclined her seat and the guy who was in the seat behind. And I was stunned to discover that there was division about how to interpret this video. 
that there were people who were saying it was okay for the guy behind to hit the seat over and over and over and over and over and over and over again for minutes at a time. It's hard for me to imagine this person doing it if there had been a guy sitting in front of him. There are people who have said, well, if the seat behind you doesn't recline, you're not allowed to recline your seat. Which means, of course, that the person in front of her can't recline either, all the way up to the front, turtles all the way down. So rather than litigating and arguing about the specifics of one case, because we know most of the time when there's a scuffle on an airplane, it probably could have been avoided, the point remains. And the point is, we make judgments. There's another problem with the marshmallow test, not with the test itself, but with the story it encourages us to tell ourselves. And it's this, that there are branches, irrevocable branches in people's lives. That something you did in a laboratory at Stanford when you were three and a half has some sort of magical impact on what you're going to be like when you're 25. That going to a school where maybe there are one standard deviation more suspensions than at a school down the street will have a significant impact on whether or not you end up in prison. That going to prison for any reason has a significant impact on your lifetime earnings, your ability to contribute. These irrevocable turning points in our lives don't have to be irrevocable. We don't have to embrace a culture that insists that there are no do-overs, no second chances, that once somebody has been put into a category, they have to stay in that category. Because in addition to being immoral and unfair, it's also a lousy use of assets to sort people based on how they look or how we interacted with them once or how the world interacted with them once or based on a choice they made years ago deprives all of us of the chance to make things better. Now, even if we strive to be perfectly fair at all times, our instincts are going to kick in because we label categories of objects. We label categories of people. And so, if we want to undo this, we have to realize it's going to take a while. But we also have to start now. We have to start where we are, right in front of us. And it has to do with the benefit of the doubt. Just like that four-year-old needed to give the investigator the benefit of the doubt and believe that two marshmallows were going to be forthcoming if he didn't eat the first one, we need to figure out how to give others, others who don't have the same experience that we had, others who don't look like us, how do we give them the benefit of the doubt? Because it's easier than ever in so many areas of our life to measure the output. Lord knows we are measuring the output every click, every second, every keystroke in so many endeavors that humans engage in. Is it possible to set aside our bias just long enough to wait for the second marshmallow? Just long enough to help others get where we have gotten through hard work? through trust, through people believing in us. I hope we can. I hope we can get there more quickly than we are because the progress we've made in the last hundred years is tremendous, but it is nothing 
compared to what it could be or should be. Thank you for listening to my rant about marshmallows. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second with an answer to a question from last time. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. If you want to learn to ride a bicycle, don't watch a video, don't read a book. Hey, it's Seth, and I'm here to talk about the Akimbo Workshops. These are interactive, real-time, online workshops that work. And we're devoting 2020 to finding one that matches where you need to go. If you're ready to level up, I hope you'll check out akimbo.com to find out about our proven, effective workshops. As you know, I love hearing from you. If you've got a question, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and press the appropriate button. While you're there, you can see previous episodes and the show notes. When it comes to pseudoscience and basing all we believe on the facts, what do we do if we think the facts are being misrepresented? Then do we default to our belief? If our belief is based on certain foundational principles, can we default to our belief? I believe we live in a culture right now that purposely misrepresents facts, and then we're quoting facts to the accepted narrative, but we're being tricked. I would like your opinion on this, because I do feel we live in a time where we have more access to the facts, but the facts are being misrepresented to us. Thank you, sir. We could probably make eight podcasts about this, but I want to talk about two things when it comes to facts. And I'm putting the word facts in quotation marks. The first one is this. Facts are usually related to our culture, to our definitions. Is it a fact that the Earth is a planet? Well, it depends on what you mean by planet. Is it a fact that I can get in a car and drive from here to Cleveland? Well, it depends what you mean by car and Cleveland. Something like mathematics isn't based on much in the way of culture. There are a series of fundamental principles and rules, and after that, facts are facts. Two plus two in our version of math always equals four. Pi is an irrational number that starts 3.14159. No matter what a legislature decides to do, no matter what a textbook publisher changes, pi is pi. But it gets way more complicated when we start to talk about complexity. Things like opinion, things like eyewitness reports, what actually happened back then. And now it's getting even more confusing because we have people who can bend statistics to their will. We have fake videos, fake audio. You get the idea. So when we talk about a fact, I think it's important to begin with there really are facts based on our shared understanding of the world. Some things really did happen. Some things actually occurred and are going to occur again. Why do some people want to make it so that facts are blurry? Well, there are a couple of reasons for this. One, the inquisitive researcher, the scientist who says, wait, that thing we thought was a fact might not be a fact. If you drop two balls off the Leaning Tower of Pisa, it is not a fact that the heavy one hits the ground first. They both hit the ground at the same time. And yet, after Galileo did 
that experiment, at least in the myth, plenty of people still taught and believed that the heavy one hit first, false facts appearing real. But the common reason is this. In politics, in leadership, in organizations, as we learned in George Orwell's classic 1984. How many fingers, Winston? If you can blur the facts, if you can make up into down and in into out, if you can keep changing the way people see reality, folks will look for firm ground to stand upon. And what they might choose to stand upon is belief and authority and power. Because belief, authority, and power are threatened by reality. Because reality sticks around for a long time. Reality is there right in front of our nose. If we can blur reality, then what we can do is get people to realize that their only choice is to follow power and authority. That's why it's so important in whatever field we're in to embrace the universe as it is, to look for, celebrate, and cherish actual facts. Because facts don't care who's in charge. Facts don't care what the culture is saying this week. Facts are persistent. Facts can be looked at from many different angles, and we can learn something from them. And when we learn from them, we have a chance to make things better. Recorded history, the last 10,000 years of it, is a relentless progression toward utility, toward fairness, toward justice, toward making things work better. And the way we do that is not because we are following one demagogue or another. The way we do that is because the facts are compounding. And so we have the germ theory of disease. You can deny the germ theory of disease if you want to make money selling your fancy make-believe medicine or being some sort of quack. But the fact is, disease is caused by germs. It's a fact. Knowing that has saved the lives of billions of people and eased the lives of just about everyone. I could go on and on about our food supply, about the way we engage with the built world. Buildings don't fall down anymore because it is a fact that you should not make a building out of sticks if you have the choice to make it out of bricks instead. And on and on we go. So that's the beginning of a rant about facts and why they may or may not be in dispute. Thank you for your question. We'd love to hear from you. We'll see you next time. I just don't think it's possible or probable in, in today's world to distinguish yourself as an educational institution or as a success seeker at the level of, of information gathering or information distribution. I mean, this is the information age and you can get a great book, a great essay, a great idea anywhere, you know, and none of us can do that better than the internet, right? Um, there is no great thought leader who can outthink the internet, like we have data. What all MBA gets right is it puts you in a context where you're part of a community that says, yeah, 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 that's good. You got access to ideas, you got access to information, that's awesome, but when are you going to show up? When are you going to face that blank page? When are you going to face the possibilities within you? 
When are you gonna face those fears? I'm not gonna let you hide. You gotta show up. And that's the hardest part. And it sounds simple, it sounds very commonsensical, but it's the number one reason why we don't write that book. It's the number one reason why we don't ask that question. It's not because we don't know or we don't have the information. We don't have an environment and we don't have a support network that makes it feel like showing up is possible for me. Not just possible for the success stories I see out there, but I can show up. Consider the Alt-MBA. More than 3,000 alumni in 74 countries around the world. Find out more at altmba.com.